Well, it was the late 1500s. The British Empire was perilously on the verge of being overthrown by King Philip of Spain. Queen Elizabeth I was clinging to power as people within her own courts were scheming against her. Uh, the, the nation of Britain at this time was divided between Catholics and Protestants. Queen Elizabeth was a, was a Protestant queen trying to uh, spur on the growing Protestant Reformation there in the British Empire. Uh, but King Philip of Spain, the Pope, they were doing everything they could to undermine her authority. And her power was very much at risk in this, in this era. Uh, the British Empire was on the verge of bankruptcy. She could no longer pay her army. She could no longer support her empire. And things were looking perilous. That was until September 26, 1580, when a pirate by the name of Sir Francis Drake sailed in to London Harbor on his ship, the Golden Hind and unloaded a treasure trove of tens of millions of dollars worth of gold that he had stolen from the Spanish Empire over the last three years as he circumnavigated the globe. Francis Drake was the, the first man to complete a circumnavigation of the globe. Uh, a few weeks ago, I talked about Ferdinand Magellan and his armada, which was the first armada to complete a circumnavigation, but Magellan never made it. He died in the Philippines. Francis Drake was the first, the, the first to complete a circumnavigation. But the interesting thing about Drake was he never started out as an explorer seeking to circumnavigate the globe. He started out his expedition specifically with the goal of plundering gold and treasure from the Spaniards to support Queen Elizabeth and protect the British monarchy. It's really interesting when you study history, the way in which things work out it's almost like that there is a sovereign hand guiding all of these events. You know, it's interesting. If Francis Drake hadn't pulled in to London Harbor when he did, providing the wealth for Queen Elizabeth, it's very likely that Queen Elizabeth would have been toppled. Had Queen Elizabeth been toppled, England would have reverted back to Catholicism. It's very likely with that taking place that the burgeoning Protestant Reformation would have been squelched. Remember, it only began in, the, in 1517 with Martin Luther. And the Catholics would have then had complete domination over all of Europe. Everything would have changed. No British Empire. No American colonies. No founding fathers. No revolution. No United States of America. It's interesting how a pirate saved the Reformation and really is responsible in many ways for what ultimately took place throughout history. The interesting thing about Francis Drake, when you read about Francis Drake, he himself was a devout Christian, a devout Protestant. In fact, while he was a pirate, he was known for his prayer, his worship. Uh, he didn't kill anybody in any of his raids against the Spanish. Uh, he was very much seeking to follow God's will and plan. Uh, and while he did steal, he stole against the Spanish under the premise that they were under the authority of the Pope, who he believed was a tool of the Antichrist. And so that was his justification for plundering the, the Spanish Empire. But it's very interesting how God used a pirate sovereignly to bring about his purposes for history. 
I just finished this book on Sir Francis Drake and Queen Elizabeth recently, and it was interesting timing because as I finished this book, I had started preparing for our new sermon series in the book of Daniel. And as I started studying the book of Daniel, as I'm reading about Francis Drake and Queen Elizabeth in the background, I'm recognizing that all throughout history, God has been sovereignly working out his plans and purposes for the world. And just like he used a pirate to preserve the British Empire and save the Protestant Reformation, hundreds of years before, he used a man named Daniel. And he used the events in Daniel's life to bring about a period of transformation in the nation of Israel, to bring about an era of transformation for world history, ultimately leading to the coming of the Messiah. And so it's interesting today as we start our series in the book of Daniel, we're going to look at some of these broad themes that we see throughout this book, this great book. Daniel's a book that takes place primarily in the 6th century B.C., Uh, over the course of 90 years of Daniel's life. Daniel was one of the major prophets of the Old Testament, and Daniel spent the vast majority of his life in exile in the nation of Babylon. And Daniel, during that time, ended up rising to great prominence and power in the Babylonian Empire. We're going to study all of this together as we go through, through this powerful book. But the book of Daniel is really an, an interesting book for two reasons. It's, it's a very practical book, but it's also a prophetic book. The, the first six chapters of Daniel are all about Daniel's life and how he was taken in exile to the Babylonian Empire. He, he was taken from Judah, from Jerusalem, to Babylon, how he rose to prominence in the Babylonian courts, how he served the emperors of Babylon, and then later the Medo-Persian Empire, and, and how God worked through Daniel's life to show God's people, number one, that it is possible to live faithfully under an oppressive culture, under a foreign pagan culture that did not, did not honor God, but it is possible to live for God and honor God in that context. And also, God used Daniel to inspire his people with hope that God had not abandoned his people, that even in their exile, God was working, that God had a plan and a purpose for these events that were taking place. And so Daniel's a very practical book and and a lot of application that we can take from Daniel for our lives today. For us living in a post-Christian culture like we find ourselves in today here in America, there's much that we can learn from Daniel's example and and how he lived faithfully in a very anti-God pagan context, very similar to what we face today. So we're going to learn a lot of practical lessons from Daniel. We're also going to look at the prophecies of Daniel. The second half of the book of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12, are all the prophecies that God gave to Daniel. Some incredible prophecies. Prophecies about God's plans for the nation of Israel. Prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. In fact, some incredible prophecies like Daniel prophesying the exact year that the Messiah would come into the world. And then not only that, but Daniel goes on to prophesy world events that would take place between the exile of Judah and Babylon until the return of the Messiah. He would talk about the world empires and prophesy them in such incredible detail, as we're going to see, that many skeptics to this day still say this book can't be true. This has to have been written later because these prophecies are too incredible. They're too accurate. Somebody must have wrote this hundreds of years 
after these events took place, not hundreds of years before. But see, the reality is, is these were miraculous prophecies. And we know that for many reasons, but, but probably the most significant reason why we believe Daniel was accurate as a prophet is because Jesus himself, in two different places in the gospel, affirms Daniel as a prophet of God, affirming the prophecies that Daniel made. And if Jesus, God in flesh, puts his stamp of approval on Daniel, then we can trust that Daniel truly was a prophet who 600 years before Jesus was prophesying these incredible things that we're going to see. Not only prophecies about the Messiah, not only prophecies about the coming world empires after the Babylonians, but we're also going to see Daniel has a lot to say prophetically about the future and the end times and the second coming of Jesus Christ, and the future reign of Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom. Daniel is really the Old Testament equivalent to the book of Revelation in the New Testament. In fact, you really can't understand the book of Revelation unless you interpret it in light of the book of Daniel. The, these two books go hand in hand, and once again, these two books together show us God's sovereignty over history. We're going to talk more about that reality here today as we look at three central truths about God that we find here at the opening of the book of Daniel. Let's have a word of prayer and ask God's blessing as we go to his word this morning. And then we are going to start our series in Daniel looking at the first two verses in Daniel chapter 1. Now some of you who have heard me preach over the years are thinking, holy cow, two verses, Jason. Wow, I mean, I, I'm, I'm generally known for going through like massive sections of scripture. But no, we're going to dive deep into two verses and look at three central truths about God in these verses that we're going to see woven all throughout our series in the book of Daniel. So let's pray and ask God's blessing as we turn to his word. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to come into your presence to worship you. We thank you now that we have a chance to dig into your word and begin this new series in the book of Daniel, a study which promises to just be so powerful in our lives as we learn just practically how we as your people can live in the midst of a pagan culture and follow Daniel's example of faithfulness. And there's so many lessons there that we're going to learn together, Lord. And so we ask that you would teach us those lessons and press them upon our hearts. Help us to, to live and follow the example of Daniel and his faithful friends, Lord, as they live to honor you in the midst of a very difficult context. And Lord, as we look to these prophetic promises that you give us in the book of Daniel, may we be inspired by them. May we be reminded of your sovereign orchestration of all of history. May that give us an increased faith and hope and confidence in you. And so, Lord, we're excited for this series, and we pray that you would speak to us through it. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would start that right now this morning as we begin looking at Daniel chapter 1 together. We pray this. In the great name of Jesus, amen. So we're in Daniel chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them. If you don't, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Daniel chapter 1 sets the scene for everything that is going to take place over the coming weeks as we study this book together. Daniel 1 verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. 
And he brought them to the land of Shinar, that is Babylon, to the house of the king, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, here in these first two verses of the book of Daniel, we find a lot of significant background and context that we need to be aware of in order to understand what's going on throughout the book. And I'm going to try to explain some of that context to you here this morning. But we also see here in these opening two verses three central truths about our God that we're going to find woven all throughout the book of Daniel. The first of these truths about God that are central to the book of Daniel that we're going to see again all throughout our series is this. We see the reality of the sovereignty of God. We see the reality of the sovereignty of God here in verses 1 and 2. We see how it was the Lord in verse 2. It was the Lord who gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of Babylon. Now, when we talk about the idea of sovereignty, what does that word mean? Well, friends, when we talk about sovereignty in regards to God, what we are referring to is God's unparalleled dominion, wisdom, and power. That our creator God is unparalleled in his rule, his dominion, in his wisdom, his knowledge, his power. And that's what sovereignty means. We, we speak that word, we use that word, and, and that word really is a reflection of the core essence of who our creator God is. The, the Bible speaks about the reality of God's sovereignty in a variety of places in many different ways. Passages, for example, like Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. Isaiah says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Friends, this is the word of God given to the prophet Isaiah. And here, God declares he is sovereign. What, what he's saying here in, these pas in this passage is, look at there is no one that has greater dominion over me. There is no one who knows more than me. There is no one who is more powerful than me. God says, I am sovereign. We read in Psalm 103, verse 19, the psalmist tells us, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that pleases him. He does anything he wants. Why? Because he's sovereign. He rules over it all, and he is all powerful. We read in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, the apostle Paul says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, friends, what does that mean? 
That means that there is nothing in the world or in all of history that falls outside of the counsel of the sovereign will of God. He doesn't just work some things. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so because God is sovereign, we read throughout the Old Testament these miraculous stories of God's sovereign power. We read, for example, how God creates the earth ex nihilo, out of nothing. That the ultimate demonstration of his sovereignty. We see him parting the sea. We see him making the sun sand still. We see him igniting wet wood, soaking wet wood, blazing in fire. We see God curing disease. We see him ordering ravens. We see him flooding the earth. We see him opening up the ground and swallowing up his enemies. We see him causing iron to float on water. He multiplies bread and oil. He raises the dead. He commands whales. And this is just a handful of the examples in the Old Testament that we see of God's sovereignty. It's no wonder the psalmist in Psalm 135 verses 5 and 6 says this, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Whatever he pleases, he does. Why? Because he's sovereign. He has all dominion, he has all wisdom, he has all power. Now friends, with this recognition in mind and understanding what God's sovereignty means, we can begin to fully appreciate the context of the book of Daniel, especially the opening verses here of chapter 1. You see, the book of Daniel takes place during a period of crisis and calamity in the nation of Israel and specifically in the southern kingdom of Judah. But the reality is this crisis and calamity that was befalling the kingdom of Judah, which really provides the backdrop for this whole series in the book of Daniel, the reality is this crisis and calamity that was facing Judah was not outside of the sovereign providence of God. When Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came and laid siege against Jerusalem and ultimately ended up destroying the whole city and carrying off all of its inhabitants into captivity in Babylon, none of that was outside of God's sovereignty. In fact, we see very clearly that while it was Nebuchadnezzar who came against Judah, what does verse 2 tell us? The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Nebuchadnezzar was the tool in the hands of a sovereign God, bringing this judgment, this calamity upon the nation of Israel. Let me just show you a map of the the world at this time, just to give you some historical background about what was taking place here. So you see Babylon. Babylon, the capital of the Babylonian Empire, that's about 50 miles south of present-day Baghdad, Iraq. So some of you who have, who have fought in some of our wars recently over in the Middle East, right, you've been in these areas. This is Iraq. This is, this is Iraq. Babylon is in, uh, modern-day Iraq is ancient Babylon. Right next to Iraq, you have Iran. That is what was known as the ancient Medo-Persian Empire. They're going to come on the scene later in our study in the book of Daniel. But the Babylonian Empire here basically extended over the entire Middle East, 
over an area known as the Fertile Crescent. Why was it called the Fertile Crescent? Well, it was this crescent-shaped region of the globe in the Middle East that was especially conducive to life because of the major rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. You had then the, the River Jordan that flows through, through the land of Israel from the top of Syria down to, to the Dead Sea in, in, uh, in uh, Israel. And then you cross over to Egypt and you have the Sinai Delta and the Nile River, right? So all of this encompassed the Fertile Crescent and some of the major world empires in the ancient world were in this area and they were regularly fighting over this region. It was the crossroads of the world. And so what happened was before the Babylonian Empire, you had the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire, before Nebuchadnezzar came along, they owned all of this territory. They owned all this territory. And in 722 BC, they had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and taken them away into captivity. All that's left at the, at the start of the book of Daniel is the southern kingdom of Judah. But now, Nebuchadnezzar has risen to power. And Nebuchadnezzar comes up and he conquers the Assyrians... And the Egyptians had come up to fight with the Assyrians up at the very tip of that crescent there, a city called Carchemish. It's not on the map, but it's way at the tip of that, right above Syria. The Egyptians had come to help the Assyrians. Nebuchadnezzar comes, he defeats the Assyrians, and then he drives the Egyptians back down into Egypt. Now, on his way home from Egypt, he decides, I'm going to stop over into Judah, and I'm going to lay siege against, the, uh, against Jerusalem, and I am going to make Judah a vassal of my empire. And so he lays siege to Judah in, uh, in 605 B.C., the first siege against Judah, he carries away a number of captives, including Daniel and Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, who we're going to study later in our series, right? He takes them away to Babylon. That's where we find ourselves today. Nebuchadnezzar's in control now, and he's going to come back to Jerusalem two more times, three total sieges against Jerusalem, where ultimately in 586, he's going to completely wipe Jerusalem off the map, destroy the temple, destroy the city, take everybody away into captivity, and Nebuchadnezzar's the man. He's in charge of everything now in the Middle East. That's what's taking place at this time in the world, 605 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem. But again, it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar in charge of all of this. What does verse 2 tell us? And God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Nebuchadnezzar was the tool, but God was sovereign over it all. See, friends, God was at work. God was orchestrating these events. God was carrying out his will for the kingdom of Judah. Jerusalem was under siege and it would fall and it would be plundered. But all of these events were under the sovereign hand of God who was directing the affairs of both his people and the enemies who had come against them. None of this was happening by chance. None of this was happening outside of God's sovereignty. And we see God's sovereignty here in the book of Daniel, not only in his direction of these events, but also in his foretelling of these events. Friends, do you know that God actually prophesied that all of these things were going to come to pass? Hundreds of years earlier, God told the people of Israel, this is going to take place. Judah is going to fall. And specifically, they're going to fall to the Babylonians. 
He prophesied this a hundred years before it happened through the prophet Isaiah when the empire of Babylon didn't even exist. And there was no Nebuchadnezzar. But he told Isaiah to tell the people of Israel that these things were going to take place. Look at what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 39, 5 through 7. And keep in mind, this was a hundred years before Daniel 1, verses 1 and 2, which took place in 605 B.C. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried away to Babylon. Well, wait a minute. Assyria is the reigning empire right now. But not Assyria. No, the day is going to come when it's all going to be carried away to Babylon. Babylon wasn't even an empire at this time. All right? Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Again, there was no Babylon. There was no king of Babylon. But a hundred years before Nebuchadnezzar comes against Jerusalem, God had told his people that this was going to take place. He was going to lay siege to Jerusalem. He was going to take everything away. He was going to destroy the city of Jerusalem. He was going to take your sons away, which is what we see happen with Daniel and many of the young men of Judah taken away to serve in the courts of Babylon. God had prophesied all of this. Now again, how could God do this? He was able to do this because he is sovereign. He is sovereign over history. In fact, God is not only sovereign over history, God is the very author of history. Remember what God himself tells us in Revelations twenty-two thirteen. God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. What does that mean? The Alpha is the A of the Greek alphabet. The Omega is the Z of the Greek alphabet. God says, look at I am the first and I am the last. I am the beginning. I am the end. There is no other God like me. God's sovereign over all of time. He's sovereign over all of history. In fact, history literally is his story. God has authored all of it. Look at what King David tells us in Psalm 139, 16. David says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Friends, do you understand what this means? God authored all the days of David's life before one of them came to be because he's sovereign over all of history. He authored all of David's life. He authored all of Israel's life. He authored Nebuchadnezzar's life. He authored Daniel's life all the days before one of them came to be. He even authored your life. And think about that for a minute. What does that mean to know that the sovereign God of history has authored all the days of your life? It means you can trust him. It means you can rest in the story that he's written for your life. It means that you can have hope even in the midst of the trials and hardships that you might face because we have a sovereign God who we know throughout Scripture is loving and faithful and good, who's authored all of our days. And because of that, friends, we can rejoice. We can be people of great hope. 
Now we see God's sovereignty here in the outset at these, in these opening verses of the book of Daniel, and we recognize his hand here in Judah's captivity. It was God who gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. But all of this now leads us to an important question. And the question that we should be asking right now is why? Why did God do all this? If God was sovereign over all of these events, why was he doing this? Why was he bringing this calamity upon his people? Well, this leads us to the second truth about God that is central to the book of Daniel. A second truth that we're going to see woven throughout the book of Daniel. And that truth is the sanctity of God. The sanctity of God. And God's sanctity simply refers to his holiness his perfection, his purity, his righteousness, the reality that God has no sin in him. God is morally pure. That's what we mean when we talk about the sanctity of God. And why did God bring calamity upon the kingdom of Judah? Why did he besiege Jerusalem and take them into exile? It was a just punishment for their repeated rebellion and sin against him. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, who prophesied a hundred years before these events, he was followed by a prophet named Jeremiah, who started prophesying 50 years before these events took place. And listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says. After God says judgment's coming, Jeremiah explains to the Judean people why his judgment was coming. Jeremiah says this, but this this command I gave them, obey my voice, this is God speaking through Jeremiah, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline the ear, but they walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants to the the prophets to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck and they did worse than their fathers." Jeremiah says that God's people had repeatedly rebelled against him from the moment they came into the promised land. There was this ongoing cycle of rebellion and repentance and then God restoring them. And this kept going on and on and on. And God kept sending prophet after prophet after prophet to correct his people, but they didn't listen. And finally, God's patience ran out. And God brought his judgment against the people of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar was God's instrument of judgment against the southern kingdom of Judah. Here's a a little timeline that helps you understand where these events fall in the history uh, of the Bible in the Old Testament. All right? So, So in 1200 BC, you have the beginning of the conquest and settlement of the promised land. That's the stories of Joshua, right? Moses led the people of Israel out of, out of, in the Exodus, out of slavery in Egypt. In 1200 BC, they go into the promised land, the land that God had promised Abraham. And Joshua and the people of Israel conquer the promised land. But if you remember from our series in the book of Judges last year, the Israelites did not kick out all the pagan gods like God told them to. They allowed many of them to stay in their midst, and they became a constant thorn in the side of Israel, a stumbling block, a a, a means of temptation. And so you have the first 200 years after the conquest and settlement, you have this period of the judges where for 200 years, as we saw last year, Israel rebels. 
and, and they face God's restitution and then they repent and God sends a rescuer, right? And, and then he relieves them of their judgment. But that cycle went on five times throughout the book of Judges as we saw last year. And then the people of Israel said, well, if we only had kings, if we had kings, we would do better. And so God allowed them to have a king. He brought King Saul, and they still rebelled against him. And then he brought King David, who was for the most part a godly king, but the people still rebelled against God. And then after David, you had Solomon, and the people still rebelled against God. And after the time of Solomon, there was a literal family feud in Israel, and Israel split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And God gave the northern kingdom over 200 years of prophets calling them to repentance, but they didn't. And so finally, God wiped them off the earth in judgment through the Assyrian Empire. He gave the southern kingdom of Judah a little more time, another hundred years roughly. But finally, God's judgment wore out, and he sent Nebuchadnezzar in judgment against the people of Judah. 600 years, friends, in the promised land where God had called his people to repentance, to faithfulness, and they failed. They didn't listen to him. They, they betrayed God's sanctity. They trampled on his holiness. And so God worked in judgment against his people. Remember, when the Israelites entered into the promised land, God made a covenant with Moses and the people of Israel. God said to the people of Israel, look at if you honor me, I'm going to protect and bless you. If you dishonor me, I'm going to bring judgment against you. In, in Leviticus chapter 19, when God started speaking the covenantal laws to his people, the very first thing he told them, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the, all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for the Lord your God. I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's God's sanctity. God says, look it, I want you to be holy because I am holy. And if you're not holy, I'm going to bring judgment and we see that all throughout the history of the Old Testament. Isaiah 1.4, the prophet Isaiah again, a hundred years before Nebuchadnezzar. Isaiah says, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. This is why God brought his judgment because his people failed to honor him. Man, you think about this, friends? You think about this reality, what it means for us today? You think about the reality that God gave the northern kingdom of Israel roughly 250 years to honor him, to repent, to turn from their sins, and then finally he said, sorry, judgment's coming. He gave the southern kingdom of Judah about another 100 years beyond that to honor him, to follow him, to repent from their sins. And they failed. And then finally he said, sorry, judgment's coming. And then we think about the reality that our nation today, the United States of America, is 247 years old. And I have to wonder how long is God's patience going to last with us before he brings judgment. See, God is a God of sanctity, a God of holiness, a God of righteousness. He says to his people, be holy because I am holy. He calls us to honor him. And when we don't, he brings judgment. 
And so we understand here in the book of Daniel that it was because of Israel's sin and their unceasing rebellion over a period of 600 years that God in his perfect holiness brought judgment against his people. But there's something important we need to understand about this this morning. God's judgment wasn't based in wrath. Not at all. Instead, God's judgment was rooted in a fatherly love and a desire to discipline for the purpose of correction his people. We read, for example, in Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. We see these words echoed in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. God will bring discipline for the purpose of correction. Why? Because he's our loving father who desires us to live rightly, honoring him. In fact, Old Testament scholar Theodore Latch, he says this about the Old Testament judgment of Israel. He says his plans concerning his people are always thoughts of good, of blessing, even if he is obliged to use the rod, it is not the rod of wrath, but the Father's rod of chastisement for their temporal and eternal welfare. There is not a single item of evil in his plans for his people, neither in their motive, nor in their conception, nor in their revelation, nor in their consummation. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah says essentially the very same thing when in Jeremiah 29, 11, before God's judgment falls on Judah, Jeremiah says, the Lord says through the prophet, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Friends, understand this morning, God will sometimes in his sanctity discipline us when we stray from his perfect will for our lives, his will revealed to us in Scripture. But when he does, it's always because he loves us and he knows what's best for us. And he wants to bring us back to a place of correction whereby we once again choose to walk in a right relationship with him. Now we're going to talk more about God's purpose for his judgment against Israel in the coming weeks God was at work in all of this for Israel's ultimate good. But for today, let me just simply encourage you. If and when you face God's discipline, and you will at times in your life, when you face God's discipline, don't be dismissive of it. Don't be discouraged by it. But recognize God's love for you in it. Embrace it and its correction, and know that it leads, as Hebrews 12, 11 says, to the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God has a plan and a purpose in our discipline. It isn't always pleasant, but it is always good. God desiring to bring us back into a right relationship with him. Now lastly this morning here in the opening two verses of Daniel we get a tiny hint about the third central truth about God that we find throughout this book and I'm just going to comment on this very briefly. This is the supremacy of God. Look at what happens at the end of verse 2. After Nebuchadnezzar comes, after God gives Judah into his hand, 
Nebuchadnezzar then takes some of the vessels of the house of God and he brought them to the land of Shinar, which is Babylon, to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. What's going on here? Friends, in the ancient world, to plunder the temple of another people's God and carry away their treasure was basically to talk trash in the face of that God and say, your God is weak and our God is supreme. Probably a modern-day equivalent would be like in our college football games, right? When, when the Gophers try to win Paul Bunyan's axe or the little brown jug, right? And they carry, carry away these trophies, and these trophies represent, look at, we're the champs. We rule. We're dominant. We beat you, right? And, and, and that's how you celebrate your victory. Well, it was the same way in the ancient world, except they would take away treasure, and so Nebuchadnezzar, as we're going to see throughout the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar eventually ransacked all of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, carried away all the treasure of Israel. We're going to see later, actually, Ezra chapter 1 tells us it was over 5,400 pieces of gold, gold objects that were carried away by the Babylonians, taken in the plunder of Jerusalem. He took all God's treasure. And in doing that, Nebuchadnezzar was basically saying, my God is better than your God. Nebuchadnezzar's name means Nebuchadnezzar. Nabu was the God of wisdom of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's God. And so when he took away the treasure, he took it to the temple of Nabu in Babylon or the temple of Marduk, the chief God of Babylon. And he put God's treasure in their temple and he said, my God is better than your God. But friends, you know something? Not much later, in fact, roughly 70 years after Judah's exile in Babylon, God would get his treasure back. We're going to see later in the book of Daniel how God raises up Cyrus, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. And Cyrus comes into power and he destroys the Babylonian Empire and he takes control. And then God, in his sovereignty, uses Cyrus to return the people of Israel back to Jerusalem, allows them to rebuild their temple. Cyrus ships back all of God's treasure back to the temple. This was all under God's sovereign providence. God was in control of all of this, friends. He's the author of history. And not only does God get his treasure back, but want to know what happens 500 years after that? 500 years after that, the Babylonians actually bring their treasure to God. Well, when did that happen? Well, the book of Matthew tells us about it. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. In the first, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east, magi from Babylon, came looking for Jesus, the king of the Jews. And the wise men, the magi from Babylon, what did they do? They brought their treasure. And they laid their treasure before the feet of King Jesus. God didn't just get his treasure back, he also got the treasure of the Babylonians. How did the magi know to look for King Jesus? Well, we're going to see one of the miraculous parts of the book of Daniel God, in his sovereignty, would elevate Daniel to the position of the chief magi in Babylon. And as the chief magi in all of Babylon, Daniel would have taught the other magi the great prophecies of God. Prophecies like Micah 5.2, that out of Bethlehem shall come one who will be a ruler in Israel. Prophecies like Numbers 24.7, that a star will come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise in Israel. Why were the magi looking for a star? 
Why did they travel to Bethlehem? They knew these prophecies. They knew them from Daniel. They were awaiting the king of the Jews, the one who would be, as Isaiah 9, 6 tells us, a prophecy that Daniel would have told the Magi in Babylon that Emmanuel, God with us, is coming. And they were looking for the star. And that's why they came to Bethlehem. And they brought their treasures and they laid them before the feet of Jesus. Isn't that awesome, friends? Friends, understand, God is supreme. His will is never thwarted. And he always, in the end, gets all the honor and glory. Amen. And so we're going to see these themes all throughout the book of Daniel in the coming weeks. We're going to see God's sovereignty. We're going to see his sanctity. We're going to see his supremacy. And all of these things, my hope and prayer for us is that they are going to inspire us to love God more, to trust him more fully, and to honor him more faithfully with our lives. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this great book that we're going to have the privilege of studying together. And I just pray, Lord, that you will open our eyes to your supremacy and your sanctity and your sovereignty in new ways throughout this series, that you will give us a fresh vision of who you are, that this fresh vision would compel us to trust you more and to love you more and to honor you more faithfully, that we might be inspired by Daniel and his friends and their example, that we might be uh, blown away by your prophetic words about the future and the whole that we have in them, Lord. We're so thankful that you in your sovereign wisdom have given us your word to lead us, to guide us, and to help us to grow in our knowledge of you and our trust in you. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would bless this series in the coming weeks. Encourage our hearts today as we go forth from this place, reminding us that you are a sovereign God, sovereign over all of our days. Help us to honor you in your sanctity, and Lord, help us to worship you in your supremacy. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, would you stand for our benediction this morning? <laughs> this comes from Revelation chapter 1. Now to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you, friends. Have a great week. Hey, friends, thanks for joining us online today. If you have further questions, are in need of prayer, or would like to give financially to the ministries of Lakes Free Church, I encourage you to visit our website, lakesfree.org. There you'll also find information regarding our upcoming events. You can access all of our past sermon series, along with a host of other valuable resources. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us in person for one of our Sunday services or other events. We'd love to meet you. Thanks again for joining us, and may God bless you.